Before we begin, Sweathead is celebrating his five-year anniversary on January 20, 2023 with a free online event called the Sweathead Get Ahead. It features Elizabeth Paul, CSO of the Martin Agency, Andy Nan, co-founding partner of Lucky Generals, Tahab Reyes, one of the world's most awarded strategists from the Publicis Group, Ambika Pai, CSO of Mechanism, Aisha Hakim from 72 and Sunny, and Rodrigo Moroni, CSO, Wonderman Thompson. Go to sweathead.com. It's free. It's two hours. It's online. What's up? And welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have a man that I used to sit very near, maybe within arm's length, Justin Graham here. We worked together at Leo Bennett years ago. Justin is currently the CEO of MNC Saatchi Australia and New Zealand. That's two countries, Justin. It's great to have you back here. It was great to be here. We're doing this in the flesh. We're going to talk about from strategist to CSO to CEO today. But I want to give you the opportunity just to give us, because it's really interesting, give us the origin story of MNC Saatchi, because MNC Saatchi is a big and well-known brand in a few countries, but I have a feeling a lot of the people in the US aren't as familiar with it as those of us who grew up with the brand. Yeah, it's a great story. And so where it came from, I think Morris and Charles Saatchi were two precocious, very entrepreneurial brothers that really changed the face of advertising coming out of the UK and then around the world. They uh, obviously set up Saatchi and Saatchi, which became one of the biggest, most famous ad networks in the world. And then there's lots of stories around how it got to a shift or, or a departure for them from Saatchi and Saatchi. They will say that they were fired. But Saatchi and Saatchi, I guess, back in the day had been built through a business that was borrowing money to go and either acquire or invest in organizations, agencies around the world. And they got to a point where they realized the best way to go and borrow money and continue to expand would be to go and buy a bank. And then you could go and lend yourself the money, which <laughs> at the time, I think they were starting to say, you know, the business had got bigger than I guess their involvement as well. And that bank at the time was the British Midlands Bank, which is now HSBC. Anyway, that didn't happen. At the end of the day, they got fired slash left slash, I mean, that's folklore in terms of what happened. They walked across the road. After they had sold the agency though, right? Yes, they'd sold the agency to a, a whole big, big holding company. And so they walked across the road and went and set up the new Saatchi agency, at which point they got sued at this point because they, they, if they were the new Saatchi agency, then Saatchi and Saatchi would be the old Saatchi agency. What they were allowed to do was go and trade under MNC, Morris and Charles Saatchi, and the rest is history. So MNC Saatchi exists in around 20-something countries around the world, about 2,500 people, and has done some of the most famous work in the world. And that's the history of MNC. Yeah. Who are your biggest clients in Australia and New Zealand? In Australia, we're very fortunate to work with the largest, the most valuable brand actually in Australia, which is the Woolworths Group. So we work with Woolworths, Combank, uh, just recently Tourism Australia, which I know featured on the podcast. We work with Optus. We work with yeah, many great organizations actually, and we're really fortunate. One of the very iconic Australian brands that we're fortunate to get to shape and craft. Yep, yep. And then the size of the Sydney business, how many people work here? What kinds of departments do you have? So we're a fully integrated business. We've got 420 people across Australia and New Zealand. We've got hubs in Auckland, Melbourne, Sydney. But in reality, look, we're all over the place now in this hybrid world that we live in. We have integrated media, design, PR, advertising, and a data and tech business at the center of all of that. Uh, we have a film studio. And we've got some post-production facilities as well, which is all good fun. Love it, love it. So we're going to split this interview into two bits. One is preparing for CEO and the second is being CEO. Let's talk about preparation. So we worked together around 14 to 15 years ago. And from what I remember, I think you already had the idea that you wanted to be a CEO of an advertising agency. Is that correct? I think, and you know me well, there's definitely been an ambition to continue to put myself in new situations and 
when you put yourself into you know where we were at the time at, at Leah Burnett, an advertising agency, you start to really look at the people that were leading the organization. And I'm always just been fascinated like you are as well around leadership. Didn't necessarily see my path to go straight to being the CEO of an ad agency. And there was definitely times where I felt like my path was actually outside of our industry, yeah, joining client side, going to a tech company, even rejoining consulting, which is where I briefly was before I came into this industry. So I always saw you as someone who was very intentional with your career decisions because you went from Sydney to New York. You went over and did interviews, which was a little bit quiet, but we kind of knew what was going on. And you ended up at BBDO working on Gillette. Tell us a little bit about that time because I think you were probably 27-ish, 28, right, when you made that move. And that is an age that a lot of people listening to this are like, hang on, should I be trying to be more ambitious? Should I join a startup? Should I join a tech company? You went to New York. What was going on in your life at that time? And was that move part of an intentional plan? I think the deliberate part was I did really want to go to the US and actually New York in particular. And that had come from in my childhood, I was very fortunate to go on one overseas trip and I found myself in New York. And I remember sitting there thinking, I just want to live here. I don't care how I do it. And I don't really care what profession gets me here. I just love the experience. So what was going on in my life then was I was engaged, due to be married at the end of 2007. We were pre-kids and really up for an adventure. And so I had been able to go and interview in some places around the world. And uh, Tracy Lovett at BBDO at the time was very uh, generous to give me a role there to go and work on Procter & Gamble. I remember sitting there thinking I was working on some local Diageo brands that people in the US would have no idea about and no idea about the impact. Brands like Bundaberg Rum, big here, not big anywhere else. And I thought, well, how am I going to get to transfer what I've done here to a market like that? Well, Effies are a pretty good currency to be able to go and do that in advertising world. And so I really dedicated myself to writing Effies to go and prove that. And we're very fortunate to get a, a gold that year for Bundaberg Rum, a silver for Johnny Walker as well. And so you could go into interviews in New York and say, well, I've done this. And they go, okay, right. And at the time, look on YouTube and go, well, yeah, those ads seem to match up to that and give you a shot. So yeah, this is all sort of pre-financial crisis, Lehman Brothers, all of that happened. So it might have been a bit more open then, but definitely that was the deliberate part. All right. So that wasn't necessarily about you saying, I've got to do these four or five moves to become a CEO. It was more you wanted to be in a bigger market and you wanted to be somewhere that you had enjoyed visiting when you were younger. That's right. And what brought me back was again, and I encourage everyone to think about this, was a family decision. You know, we were very fortunate to be pregnant at that point. And we realized that actually Australia was a brilliant place to go and have our first kid. And, you know, I came back again with the agency Droga 5 at the time and a very different adventure again. It came out of 500, 600, 600 people on 6th Avenue to 22 people in a room in Redfern here in Sydney. I do look back on it and we talk a bit about leaders and between Todd Sampson and then Tracy Lovett, who was a fantastic CSO at BBDO at the time, and then Sadeep Gohill who brought me back at Droga 5, all three of them went on to become a CEO, yeah. either of that organization or a subsidiary of, in Tracy's case. And so I don't know if it was nature or nurture, but that seemed to have been the guide that I had. And so I got to learn a lot from that. I want to give you a few questions that it's going to be the same question. I want quick answers okay. about being a strategist and what you've learned based on certain experiences. And then we'll come back to the CEO. What is the single most important thing you learned about strategy at Arthur Anderson? Rigor. Here we go. At Leo Burnett, Sydney. Creativity. From Diageo. 
Diageo is rare because they kind of teach you how to do strategy while you're doing strategy for them, right? The word that jumped into my mind around Diageo would have been innovation. Okay. Why? They were passionate about it and uh, had people dedicated to it and were constantly looking at new product development, new channels, thinking differently around even their own strategic processes as well. I don't know if they are a company known for innovation, but certainly my experience, the first word that jumped in was innovation. When you look back at your time in New York, how did it affect you as a strategist? The word scale comes to mind. You know, back in Australia at that point, we were doing phenomenal work, winning Canline, winning DNAD, see Effies across Asia as well. But to get it up, it felt reasonably small at that time. It was based on focus groups in a couple of key markets, often TV led, although, you know, the ideas became and sort of evolved to be very different shaped than that. Then you get to the US and I went from working across Gillette, North America at a time where it had only recently been bought by Procter and Gamble. And it was really set as the marker for how one of the largest organizations in the world was going to target men after being very biased towards women for a long period of time with its products. So I came in probably as someone that had had some experience working on male dominated brands in a very Western market. And so the other tension point at that time was, okay, actually, the future of Gillette is going to be in emerging markets around the world, very much China, India, Russia, and parts of South America, with very different needs as well. So as a strategist, all of a sudden, you had to say, I've got to unthink everything that I knew before. It wasn't a lived experience living in Sydney to understand this. You know, I found myself with a translator in a bathroom in Sao Paulo with this poor kid showing me how he was shaving. Just do what you're doing there as he spoke in Portuguese and then there was a translator, then a translator to me as we all jammed in. And I thought, but that's how you did it back then. That was the way to do it. That was phenomenal for me. It just opened my mind. We talk a lot about at MNC around walking in other worlds. And I think actually even as the CEO, but definitely as a strategist, that experience in particular was say, even though we're based in the US, the fact that you jump on a plane and go and sit there and go and observe and watch people in that environment was so valuable for me. Love it. As a strategist, what's the single most important thing you took out of your experience at Drogafide? Ambition. A real ambition around the work. So much of that comes from David in himself. It was an extraordinary organization. People absolutely they're top of their game that had this ambition to just drive the art of common sense creativity against real social and business issues. Yeah. Can I say that ambition, high expectations were in most of the agencies that I worked in and I took it for granted and I had to experience agencies that didn't have them that were not really creatively literate or even creatively ambitious for me to realize how rare some of the Sydney advertising experience can be. It's a rare experience in Sydney and I don't even mean that in a parochial way. I find it a, it's a very creatively competitive market, right? Very competitive here and quietly competitive with everyone around the world. I mean, if you walked out into this agency behind us here, a lot of the people would come in every morning and they'd be looking at Ad Week. They'd be looking at Campaign Asia. What's going on there? What am I missing? Who's doing good work? Whereas I did find in my time in the US, there wasn't a lot of looking elsewhere to say, well, what's everyone else? People didn't know what the agency down the road was doing. I was going to say, they don't even look outside the building. Yeah. Partly because it's so big and, and yeah. it, there's so much bureaucracy and like corporate America is just in your face all the time. Australia's different. Yeah. Chip on shoulder. Chip on shoulder, absolutely. And soaking it in. And anxiety about not being good enough and not being part of the conversation. Okay, last one. CSO of MNC Saatchi. Yes. What was the single most important thing that you learned about strategy 
from being a CSO at, at here. The varied skill sets that we had here. I'd never been a CSO across a great design business, a strong social business, data scientists, connection planners, creative planners, and everyone coming together. And that was my job. My role was newly created when I came in here. It hadn't existed before. And so it was, I guess, partly out of influence, partly out of reporting lines to be able to bring together at the time what was a group of sort of 30, 40 strategists across the business that all had varied skill sets. So I learned a lot. Yeah, I really learned a lot around how to bring that together. And that's part of what's driven the strategy that I'm implementing as a CSO, CEO as well, which is around how we come together, what connection looks like actually to make better work. All right, we're coming back to the CEO part of this, which will be the majority of this, I promise. A lot of strategists or account planners, I feel being beaten up about being generalists around the world. And a lot of companies that are bringing in strategists for the first time or say they're 10 years into it, a lot of them can be suspicious of people who are not specialists. You mentioned masculinity earlier. So I feel that we account planners at Leo Burnett, we were kind of generalists. You'd do your research, you'd write your creative briefs, you'd pitch, you'd do your presentations, you'd run workshops. But Todd always encouraged us to have a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we would talk about one plus one mm-hmm. from memory, right? For you, it was masculinity. Yeah. Why was that your thing? And is it just because you're such an alpha predator rugby union player who's incredibly good looking and hard to take your eyes off? Luckily, this is a podcast, so you know that none of that's true. Uh, Mate, you could play Thor. Come on. On a good day, you could play Thor. Things have changed a lot. Yeah, you touch on a really good point and probably imposter syndrome at its best as well, Mark. I think I came in not coming from an advertising background and Todd was incredibly generous. And look, I think for people there in your circle as well, encourage them. It's all about the boss that you work for. Yeah, because Todd probably turned both of us into partly the strategist that we are. But he said to me, look, you don't know much about this. You've got an intuition around the work, but you are leaning into and you're a consumer of a lot of the brands that I'm going to ask you to work on. I talked about some of them before with Johnny Walker and Subaru. And I think we were even working on the Australian Rugby Union at the time. And so I could intuitively get it and then learn, I guess, the practice of being a strategist and adding value in the room. So I came in through that lens and I realized all of a sudden that might have been my Achilles heel as well. Have I just been focusing on one area here and there's a whole other half the world basically to go and understand here in terms of how you go and write strategies that are going to go and appeal to them. But Todd, yeah, was right and said, no, no, go and own something. If you want to go and make a name for yourself, you've actually got to be a thought leader that has something to say. And at the time, there was like there still is, I guess, but it really was an interesting time that around that area around the role of masculinity, what was happening. And it was very fortunate for me because it largely got me the role in the US because it was such a big, it was, it's the largest male brand in the world. And they were looking for someone that wasn't from America, so had an outside view, but knew enough to be able to draw the connections there. And I could apply some of that to what was going on around the real role of masculinity. And look at the time, people will be familiar with that work. It was very dated work. This is going back 15 years, but around that time, most of I call them the Western markets, the advertising was still predominantly white people. Yes. Right? And so Gillette started to break that slowly Mm -hmm. in a way that hadn't been done. This was all before I arrived, so I don't take any credit for this, but they had these champions that they were paying a lot of money to use. Tiger Woods, Thierry Henry, Roger Federer, Derek Jeter in the US, and other champions in other markets around the world that sub into the local ad apps. 
And my whole view was you've got these extraordinary athletes that are so vulnerable in their own way. And some of them have really shown that vulnerability at different times and others haven't around that piece. But they were leaning into, I guess, a diversity around that area, although they were all absolutely the top of their game and very untouchable. And so if you are that poor kid I was just talking about in Sao Paulo, how do I connect with those people? And I actually look at the work that's happened since. I don't know who's, I think Gray was responsible for a number of, a lot of the work. They really got to a great place actually afterwards. I think we were just starting to get into some areas where we could make the brand more approachable and show up in different ways. Although I think it was when it left, it really became quite strong. Let's get back to the CEO stuff. Mm -hmm. Why did MSC Saatchi make you a CEO? It was at a time where we were looking for a change. The predecessor in there as well was looking at other roles within the network overall. I had absolutely put my hand up to say if that role was going to be available, I really want to put my hat in the ring. I love this organization. I felt a real connection with a number of the clients. And I think it was a time to just think around how the organization was going to be led differently. So I was given the opportunity. And I was given the opportunity at the start of March 2020. And so my first job was to send the 400 or so people home. What we didn't know at that point, obviously, was that Australia was going to have some of the, at the time, longest lockdown laws in the world. I look back candidly and say, if we knew what was going to come, would they have put in a very strong operational leader at that time to go and lead the organization versus someone from a strategic background? But, you know, you could explore that. So when you say you put your hand up, how does that happen? Like, it's not like you're sitting there Saturday night, you have a couple of beers, build up some courage, send a text message. You know, just in case the CEO all comes. Like, how does that happen? Because for someone who might be 15, 20 years younger than us listening to this, that kind of interaction is something they, would, they wouldn't know that it happens. They wouldn't, like, is it like the mafia? Is it just a conversation over breakfast while you're traveling with the boss and the boss's bosses at some point? How does that stuff happen? I think it probably happens in very different ways for most organizations. Uh, how it happened for me was to continue to put your hand up to do things more than your current remit. And when you get the opportunity to go through performance reviews and have open conversations with partners, with bosses, with bosses' bosses around what the future can look like, to be very open to it. There's an expression around just being open to what luck might come your way. And I was. I was very open to that. And so it happened surprisingly quickly, actually, certainly from my perspective. But I was very much looking for the next thing. And what a great time to do it. If you can find the next thing in the organization that you love, then fantastic. And most organizations that have good leadership are also looking for the next thing. Like that's not a, a secret. Yes. In toxic environments, it's a secret because yes. all of a sudden the CEO is gone. Yes. Right. But in smart, long-term thinking organizations, succession planning is constant. It is. I think every organization can be better at it overall. Of course, it can be an awkward conversation. You know, I've set up with a number of my direct reports to understand what's your plan over the next three, four, five years time. And for some of them, there would be an accelerated plan to go and take on bigger leadership opportunities. For others, they know I'm going to need to do X, Y, and Z to be considered to go and do that in the future. I think that's a really good conversation to have. Straight up. So let's say I'm a decent performer. I'm in the strategy team and you're somehow involved with a review of them as the CEO. Yes. And that person says, you know what, one day I'd love to be the CEO of an agency, maybe even this one. How would you respond to that? Does it excite you? Does it scare you? Is it annoying? Is it like, just shut up and do your job? I love it. That's probably not a surprise. But some organizations would not encourage that. You know, you're hired to do 
a job and stay within your swim lanes and do that job. Fortunately, MNC is not that organization. We have a history of being fairly entrepreneurial, probably goes back to how we were formed. But there's people that would say, hey, I want to go and run a film studio. I want to go and run this. And we actually go and we've done it. There's a couple of guys in here that said, I want to go and run an innovation business. I said, great. Okay, let's go and make that happen. So within reason, I think if you can be very clear around what you want to do, then that's great. You know, there's a slight tangent, but one of my most senior executives here has recently just relocated back to Scotland. Now, she runs one our largest account. A few years ago, that wouldn't have been possible, but she came to me and said, I need to move back for family reasons. I've been here for five or six years. I know the organization. Would you be open to making that work if I'm working on the other side of the world on a reduced time? She was so clear around what she wanted. This is going to be the cadence. I'm going to be on 25 hours a week. 10 hours of those are going to be face-to-face on Zoom calls. I'm going to be in Australia every three months. This is going to be the KPIs. This is going to be the cadence. It came to me so clear. I'm the type of person to say, well, this is so well thought out. And clearly, you've set markers and gates around if we can evaluate whether it's working or it's not working. Go for your life. There's two points I want to make sort of through you. One is that if you're listening to this and you're a good performer and you're ambitious and you're growing and you put out a goal that your company doesn't respond to, could be a signal that maybe you need to look at a different company, one. Two, what you just laid out, Justin, is that person's not giving you a problem. Yes. They're giving you a whole set of solutions. Like, I want to move to Scotland. That's not a useful thing to say to a boss, let alone a CEO. Yes. But I want to move to Scotland and here's exactly how it's going to work. That's an awesome conversation, right? Yeah. And in that case, for everyone, there is a great value exchange. You know, in this case, the executive gets to go and fulfill her family obligations and, and that's fantastic for her in terms of her life outside of work. But also for us, it is, again, diversity around how we're thinking around our most senior executives, how we're coming together. Yeah really fulfilling a world where everyone's trying to prove that they can operate in this hybrid world and become more flexible. Fantastic. We've got our most senior leader demonstrating and living it. Yep. And you've kept the institutional knowledge. Yes. You've not accrued or incurred uh, replacement fees, which for someone like that, I'd imagine is 20 to 30 to $40,000 hard costs, let alone the six to 18 months to bring new people up to speed unless you're elevating internally. But even then, there's like, you know, maybe ghost costs, is that a thing, phantom costs. And you get to tell that story, which when you're fighting for talent out there, talent like, okay, you're open to things that are a little unorthodox. Just to circle back to the question around, Mark, you're a good performer, you want to go and do this, what else can you do? There's things that a a CEO or an executive team would say, and there's the things that they don't say as well. It's the people that really observe what's important to an organization based on where they spend their time, what they're saying. For us, and say we talk about our ambition is we come together to realize big ambitions for our people, for clients, for the world. The key part around that is we come together, right? So people in this organization that put their hand up and go, oh, right, okay. So for me to move up or to take on more knowledge or to get new skills is going to be around if I might be in the CX practice, I've got to go and talk to the media people. If I'm actively going and living and showing that I'm living the ambition of the organization overall, that's going to put you in good stead. That's my priority and it's a priority of the business. 
Pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. I don't know where this quote's from, but there's a quote that stuck with me from a long time ago, which is when a CEO whispers, it's like a lion warring. We were walking around earlier, and if you said, oh, you know, there's a bar and there's red wine there, if you as a CEO said, oh, I don't like that red wine, all of a sudden, that could be a really big thing. It might not be here, but it could, oh, Justin doesn't like that red wine. It could become a really, really big thing. What are two or three things that matter the most to you as a CEO, and how have you gone about demonstrating their importance in maybe in an exaggerated or a very repeated way? So I think the first one is around bringing humanity into an organization. And I've really over-indexed around that piece. All too often there's, and certainly in a hybrid environment, you can just get caught up in the transactions of doing work. That doesn't work for any leader and certainly a CEO. I've definitely prioritized time around how do you create space around having those random interactions as well. How are you dropping into calls? How are you having forums like every month? I have at least an hour where I'm sitting there in a t-shirt in my home talking about what's important to me and what I've observed or who I'm interviewing is even sending messages as well. So I think there's a, a humanity that the world has needed, but certainly the advertising industry has needed and um, probably continues to need as well. And I think I have a, a strength in that area and I wanted to lean into that area overall. The history of, of MNC Saatchi, he's known for big, often advertising-led campaigns. That's fantastic because we're incredibly proud of the work that we've done for some of the great brands in this market. The reality is that our business is far more than that now. So I've been very intentional to showcase all the things that you wouldn't expect and you need to really lean into that. And so for me to show up in those environments, and even though I come from a background which isn't actually advertising because I was in consulting before that, I'd like to think that it was fairly neutral across discipline because I directly came out of the advertising agency before that piece. The point is to say, okay, well, is that his bias going into that role where he looks over everything? So I've been very deliberate around, okay, now I'm going to showcase everything in this organization because if I'm a marketeer, I want to know that you can do anything, that you are just taking my problem and solving it in the best way possible. I've also been very open around the type of people that I bring together, very visible that everyone can see that from an executive point of view, that there is a varied set of capabilities, let's just call it the top table, things like people and culture which didn't exist there before, was a real priority for me to say, okay, if we're going to win in this new world, it's going to be around our ability to go and attract and hold on to the best people. So we need that voice at the top table. We promoted our chief data officer into the executive team because for us to win, we need to go and do that. There's some practical things around how you show up, what you're wearing, what you're saying, how you're saying it. And then there's some structural things like who are the people that report directly to him now what are the things that he's promoting? What's he talking about in market as well? Then they all communicate. So humanity showcasing all of what the company does and then people in leadership from different backgrounds around the main table. Yes. What do you think are the five most important ways that you spend your time in any given week? 
this is such a good time to focus on this as, as we think about the end of a year, the start of a new year as well around the intent of where you should be spending your time and what you actually end up doing as well. I think the intent uh, for me around spending my time, and I preface as well with, I think the we were talking before around the difference between strategists and CEOs and strategists can spend more time by themselves. They've got more alone time, which is fantastic. And that's what I was used to. I don't do that as a CEO. And that's a big development area for me to be able to go and create the space to go and do that. So that'll be my first one to go and do. It is a priority and it's often the one that falls away, alone time. A second part is around spending time with our, our partners, our clients as well. Every chief executive of a communication business will operate in a different way. Some of them will really lean into that. Others will lean into the operational side of it. For me, I get a real thrill from talking to CMOs, chief customer officers, CEOs in many cases as well. That's probably one of the things I love every day. If I look at my calendar at the start of the day and go, I'm going to have two or three very interesting conversations with people outside of this business, fantastic. How intentional are you with that? Is it like one day a month or one day a week you set aside for talking to clients? Or do you say to yourself, I want to talk to 50 clients each month? Or is it a little bit more free-flowing? It's a bit more free-flowing. Someone that works with me would, who gets to see my calendar is always saying, no, no, everything in purple is when you're going to go and see the partners. And that's pretty helpful for me as well. I'm quite a visual person. I sit there and go, right, okay. So if I can look at my week and say, things are in purple are going to be that, things in yellow are going to be operational, internal, etc. Are you tracking it? Are you like, I want to spend 40% it. of my time with clients? Is it that specific? Yeah, okay. yeah, I'm tracking it. Probably wouldn't be 40% of my time, but it would be the most significant amount of time yeah. yeah, to go and do that in some form. All right. So we had alone time, spending time with clients. I'm going to say an area as well that any leader should be focused on is well-being as well, whether it's going for a run or doing yoga or sitting on your head or just reading a book, whatever it might be, sitting on someone else's head while you're going for a run. It's an incredible part. And I think that is the gift of a strategist about being curious outside the world and focusing on sort of a whole of life piece that you can bring to being that. And like, I don't know. I can't quote any highly effective leader quotes at the moment, but I am sure within that, that they would say, you've got to focus on that piece overall. Those are famous quotes, sit on heads. That's right. That's three. Okay. Engaging people in the organization at any level as well. So there's formal structures for me to be able to go and engage with people that are direct reports or their direct reports. Fantastic. And, you know, the within that, I won't go into too much detail, but all the things you'd imagine, financial stewardship, growth, the operations of the business, thinking around what innovation looks like. Okay. Do you break your week into certain things? So for example, I think Jack Dorsey at Twitter was renowned for spending a certain day on one company, another day on another company, and other people like like tech companies, Monday's product, Tuesday's marketing. Do you split your week like that? I certainly start the week like that. And that was something I brought in straight away. We have an operations meeting and we have a growth meeting. Operations meeting is to sit there and say, what are the immediate challenges that we need to go and run at? What's on the horizon and what's going to be transformational for us in the future? Growth is everyone across this business coming together every week for a long period of time to say... Not 420, leaders of. So let's say there's probably 10 people in that forum that represent all the different parts of our business, media, advertising, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. And we're coming together to look at what does new to agency growth look like? How are we going winning business? What does it look like to help our existing clients in new ways with capabilities that they're not accessing at the moment? 
And what does it look like to go and build new capabilities that clearly we need to build because we're not even being asked to pitch on that or not even been asked to go and bring that to the table? So there's some of the internal pieces, I guess, that exist within that. And so that's the formal structures, but the informal ones are the ones that I was talking about before, which is how am I getting a sense of just what's happening in the culture of this business overall? And I'd say the fifth one in terms of how I spend my time would be really understanding probably more the financials of the business. And that's probably the biggest shift from a strategist where you don't naturally get exposed to a P&L. There's no reason to do that. I encourage everyone just to go up to someone in the finance team and say, how do we make money? And that's a really naive question, but it's amazing how many people don't understand how an agency makes money, how a media agency makes money, how an advertising agency makes money, how the development area makes money when we're building websites and making apps. I didn't know all of that when I stepped into the role quite openly. And I was very open around what I was going to be strong at and what I wasn't going to be strong at. Now, fortunately, I don't often say this, a global pandemic was helpful for me to go and say, you know, you've got to go and sort out what the PL looks like straight away and understand every single line. Otherwise, we're not going to be in business. And that's what your clients expect of you. So that was good. And so I put that in there as that was the stretch area for me. Maybe that's why I put it as number five. But it is critical. And that's just what's expected. So on this, do you see much opportunity for innovation in the revenue model of an agency? Advertising is a pretty mature industry. Yeah. Over the past decade plus, a lot of us have romanticized cool ideas. Wouldn't it be great if we had startups as a client and we took some equity? Well, guess what? Most of those startups don't go anywhere. So you're getting equity in zero. Or what if we did, you know, value-based pricing instead of charged hours? What if we did this? Yeah, let's do this. And, and every three or four years, these ideas recycle. It's really freaking hard, especially as procurement has become more robust, but also the procurement industry has had a lot of pressure on it to not be so robust because it messes with people. So the question is, do you see much opportunity for innovation in the revenue model, how you charge for what you do? Or do you think that that's kind of locked in? There has to be room to innovate in that space. There has to be. Because I look around and I, we're not short of ideas and we're not short of strong relationships with people that can make, help make those ideas and fund those ideas. But somewhere in the middle of it, with all the things you just talked about, procurement, not being educated enough. It's not that procurement are bad. They're just used to doing a job in a certain way. And we roll in there and talk about ideas and creativity and adding value through the intangible in many ways. And they try and compare you to the people that are supplying the paper. It's bloody hard, but there has to be a new way. I think actually agencies need to take real accountability around this as well. I don't think we charge enough for what we do. I don't think we think about pricing enough actually. We don't structure our teams in the best way. So it goes both ways. So yes, I think there is so much value lost in that whole engagement. There has to be a better way. So I've worked with a bunch of publishers and social media platforms and often the strategists sit within a sales team right? because they're responding to RFPs. And the role that I think is missing, and I think it's missing in most agencies, is the institutional knowledge of and then the responsibilities of innovation that a commercial director might have. Mm-hmm. Like someone whose sole job is maybe to follow someone like you around, know the PL, but every day they're coming up with innovative ways to potentially charge for things. Agencies typically work 
with the senior account director putting together a scope and pricing and then it gets approved by a GAD and it'll come through you. Yes. But there's not often, I don't know if you do this, and there's a question coming, which is do you do this or could you do this? There's not often a moment where just before like a credit brief gets briefed in, often there's a moment where it's like, is this the brief that's going into the creative department? I don't think a lot of agencies pause and go, hang on, is there a way to be more innovative with what we're asking for here? No, they don't. That's absolutely right. Everyone gets so excited about the opportunity straight away that they you know, they're three days in before anyone would even think about asking that question. That was actually a realization even from when we used to work together. The reason I left consulting was because we continued to solve problems in the same way. So if a problem was given, we go, oh, we've got to, we know how to do that. You know, we've done that for X, Y, Z over in, you know, London, you know, last year. So we can just lift and shift and go put that in there. There was a real lack of creativity around how to go and solve that problem. Then you sort of get into a communications business and it's at the other end of the spectrum. Is that every time a problem come in, we're reinventing the wheel right from the start and try to build it. Now, both aren't right. There's probably somewhere in the middle, which is maybe why there's this convergence of technology, creative space, consulting all coming together and sitting on, on each other at the moment. But I think there's something in that as well. And if we're reinventing the wheel every time, either you get paid an enormous amount of money to go and do that, which clearly aren't being going and doing that, or you work out a more efficient way of doing that without compromising the output. Yeah. The companies that do well around the world at the moment, usually tech, often SaaS-based businesses, have productized what they do. And we're not very good at it. I think productization is easy to romanticize for agencies, but I think it can really cheapen you. Yeah. You know, like let's say you have a work, you know, you have your workshop product and your research product, your focus groups product. And all of a sudden a thing that was a little ambiguous because so much of our work is ambiguous now has a price tag of $20,000. Yeah. You know, and that changes, like the brain reacts differently when it sees a price with a particular thing. I think it's really hard to do. And even the concept beyond productization of skin in the game, you know, of, of the agency, we're going to have skin in the game. Are you really? How much of the chain of what you do are you actually going to be in control of, first of all? Yes. And then how are you going to show results? That can be a very expensive enterprise as well. And then also agencies get to a certain size which is probably above 30 or 40 people. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to stick to your principles when it comes to these pricing decisions because you got to keep people employed. Yes. If you're smaller, there's more flexibility there. I think the point you touched on around skin in the game, amazing. And we've done it. We've done a number of them over the last five years. Most of them have been presented with all the challenges that you just talked about as well. It hasn't worked because you focus on the wrong things. You sit there and think, it's great to go and invest all the money in ideation around social media or packaging and they're sitting there trying to work out their distribution approach. And you go, oh, okay, well, I'm sure you guys can work that out. No, 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 we need you to work it out. That's the problem that we're trying to solve and that's why we've given you 10% of the business or whatever it might be. And also, when do you realize value? And you can't. And Six months, six years. That's right. But there's some models, you know, I think one old colleague set up that organization bullish in New York doing a great job because they're so clear around their investment strategy and when they add sort of creative solutions around either those companies or, or brands or other ones as well. To go into those areas, you need a real rigor, which probably comes back to the, the original question, which is around your new models around value-based price. It just takes rigor. It takes rigor and being very conscious around those areas. Otherwise, it's a lift and shift of the rate card and what we did before. And we're so worried about delivering in the time anyway that we don't have time to think about how we're actually charging for it. 
So just to recap, you mentioned the five most important ways to spend your time in a week involved some alone time, spending time with clients on your own well-being and probably encouraging the well-being of your team, engaging with people where you might break some of your days and parts of your week into specific topic focuses such as ops and growth, and then financials. What you haven't mentioned is creativity. Mm. What is the role of an agency CEO who's not from the creative department Mm -hmm. when it comes to creative culture or creative ambition? My view is I'm here to create an environment where that should happen. And that can happen at the best of people's ability to go and happen. That's a really broad answer to a quite specific question. But I think to unpack that a little bit would be create the right physical environment. You know, we're sitting here in a new office that we very deliberately took 18 months to go and imagine because we wanted a place that was going to allow creativity and connection to thrive. And we didn't have that before. And we needed to do it in a place where it's bloody hard to get people together. We needed to create an environment that's going to be a magnet for creatively minded people to come together to do better work. What I want to point out is probably you didn't need to include creativity in your five because in your mind, you are in the business of exceptional creativity. It's the exceptional creativity that I think is important. And again, it's not until you work in places that are not creatively ambitious where you realize that when you have worked in somewhere that's creatively ambitious, we didn't really talk about it. You just knew everyone was competing for awards or everyone was competing to get their ideas sold through. And then you work somewhere that's not like that. You're like, oh, it now needs to be explicit. And so maybe it's a red flag or a tell that if there's a lot of talk about creativity all the time, I don't think this is necessarily true, but maybe in some places where it's talked about a lot is because it's not being done. I don't think that's correct because my experience has been that the more companies talk about organizational charts and process, the less creative they yes. are. I think there's a direct correlation. Yeah. There. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, you know, am I in many creative reviews through the week? No. Am I in key ones around pitches or where there's something really significant going on? Yeah, I am. Absolutely. And I love that. It's actually interesting when you get into this role around where you lean into things you just really enjoy versus the things that you don't enjoy enjoy as much, but you know you need to do. And I'm still finding that balance overall because I would love, I love, that's why I joined the industry initially and not just around sitting in a traditional creative review, but just the idea of new thinking and imagination coming to the table and how we can apply that and commercialize it. It's fascinating. And as much as people can be cynical about advertising, people in advertising, the advertising industry, it's a rare industry to work in where every day there's a creative opportunity. There's a way to put things into the world that can affect the world. There are ways to research and explore the world. Like it is quite rare. It was, um, I was just going to say as well that we had our interview meeting. Our chief creative officer wanted to get up there and not show any of the work that we'd done in the year because everyone sees that all the time. What he wanted to do was talk about being fearless and introduce this term, hello, fearless, which is plus on our front doors out here. And it's for everyone, whether you're in the creative department or you're not, to turn up with a fearless attitude around how you're ideating, how you're selling, how you're connecting, how you're getting out of your comfort zone. And he did it in a way where he did this idea that it was almost like an infomercial on stage. And everyone's thinking, what is he doing? Until people started to get into it. He was in character. He was in character as a a sort of a well-known American infomercial type guy that's trying to, trying, exactly, trying to sell you something. And, and I said, you know, why did you approach it that way? And he said, I think it was a bit like if a comedian gets on stage and says, I'm really funny, everyone goes, well, tell us a joke, right? And he's like, if I'm going to 
exude the type of brand of creativity you want. I'm going to do it in a way that everyone's going to be remember and love as opposed to showing the type of work we should be doing because it is the attitude. I love it. I love it. Yeah. But also I was smiling and kind of laughing at the point that you didn't need to show creative or the CCO didn't feel he needed to show creative because so many agencies I've worked in where a few of us have been brought in to help change them and you go to the first meeting and it's just numbers, numbers, numbers. I'm like, show the work, show that, start with the work, linger on the work. But I think it's just a good example of, well, when you expect to do good work all the time and you're constantly showing the work, then you don't need to make constant points about it or big points later in the year. One, two, I think that example, that's Cam, right, Cam? Yeah. Yeah. That's an example of a leader thinking about how they forgive this fancy language about how they want to embody their own idea. They're going to be their belief, be their idea and turn up in a way where they're creating their own campaign for it rather than just deliver a key message. That's right. You know, that's an important concept for a leader. Like how do you embody? What's a better word for that? Demonstrate. Yeah. Show, don't tell basically. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Let me give, you two final questions. Sure. What are the two most important KPIs for you as a CEO? For me, it's around you know, financial stewardship. I don't know if it is my most important, but in terms of how I'm KPI, is very much around needing to go and deliver on what we say we'll go and deliver. I guess a reality of, of being a business. The freedom I get though to do that is actually how we get there is largely open to the leaders. And what I mean by that is if we're spotting opportunities around investing in some areas, we can go and do that. As long as we get to that number in the end, we've got the freedom within that framework overall. Um, That's right. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. But but going into new areas to set ourselves up for, okay, yeah, that's right. What's next you're going to look like? So that's absolutely one of the most important areas. Another part behind that is it's one of our first pillars actually, which is constantly around how we're bringing to life what is an evolving MNC Saatchi overall. Now that is so broad. It's the people that we attract. You know, we want an unfair share of the world's best talent here, down in uh, you know Australia and New Zealand. It is contributing to the narrative globally around the work that we're doing, the way we're engaging with our people the thought leadership that we're putting out there as well. That's all wrapped up in this idea around, I guess, living the MNC Saatchi brand. So that's really important to me as well. And as, I mean, for me personally, it's as important as the number because actually that part drives the number. Exactly. Final question, little strategist slash account planner focus group technique here. It's a few years in the future. Yeah. You need to write the obituary of Justin Graham, the CEO of MNC Saatchi. What does it say? I think he's sitting there and saying, Justin went into an organization that was doing so many things well, really well. And that's a credit to the former leaders in this organization, genuinely. He took it at a time where the world went batshit crazy. And the idea of work, of connecting together, of a career, of even creativity, it was all thrown up at that time. And so this person, Justin, came along and set the, the building blocks for what a more human, a more diversified, a more creative organization could look like in the future and really embraced voices that hadn't been embraced in the past, delivered work to the world that made the world better in some ways as well and was really open to change. Yeah, It was someone that thought we were heading in the right direction, realized uh -uh, that's a big mistake 
and was open enough to sit there and admit the mistakes and then set it in a different direction as well. So one funny use case of this particular podcast is people interviewing with a guest to possibly get a job will listen to this and maybe quote some stuff back at you. Yes. And so kids, if you're listening to this and you get the fortune to interview with Justin and at the end of the interview, he goes, got any questions for me? Ask him about his obituary as a CEO and he'll know who planted that thought in your head and you'll get the job. That's right. Justin, thanks for being here on Sweathead today. Thank you. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, subscribe to our newsletter, find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy, memberships, company training or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.